Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, if you would, turn to Philippians once again to chapter 1. And Dave Nixon, I just want to say, I've been told many times in my life that I have a great face for radio, so... um, I've always taken that as a compliment, so uh, I would love to help any way that I can, all right? Well, the title of my message this morning, it's not there in the bulletin, but it's The Purpose of Suffering. And my hope today, as always, when anyone would come to preach is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? Uh, But I want to be an encouragement to our pastor and his family, and I want to edify all of you as the saints of God. Philippians 1, we'll look here at verses 12 through 18 in just a few moments. There's a book I would like to recommend to you. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I believe that no Christian home should be without this book. This book has been called the second most important book in history, second only to the Bible itself. John Fox wanted the church to know the stories of those who had gone before, those who stood firmly for their Savior even to the painful point of death. It wasn't only that they had died or even the details of how they died. Fox wanted the church to be encouraged by their testimonies, that even in the the lowest moments of torture and tribulation, they had found Christ worthy of their devotion and love. He wanted Christians to be blessed and encouraged by the testimonies of those who had gone before, who now formed part of the great cloud of witnesses in the stadium of history. In 2007, a new book came out entitled Fox's Voice of the Martyrs from 33 AD to Today. This too is an important work revealing that there are hundreds of Christians around the world still being martyred today for their love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to tell you about a man named Radoy Roy, who was martyred on April 23, 2003. His purpose was to bring as many people to Christ as he could, to point them to the, to the Savior. It didn't matter the danger. God had called him to this work, and he would follow to the end. So he packed up his belongings and began working in an outreach ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ in his native Bangladesh. Roy walked up to the stairs to his home in the late evening of April 23, 2003, after being dropped off by the rickshaw. It had been a wonderful evening as he showed the Jesus film to almost 200 villagers. He loved to watch the audience and the beautiful expressions of fascination and hope that showed on their faces. And he loved even more when the film finished and some in the audience chose to follow this Jesus, their newfound friend and savior. Roy turned the handle, pushed the door open to his rented home, and made his way through the dark house. Before he could even reach the light switch, he was hit in the face, being knocked to the ground. Angry, radical Muslims grabbed him and dragged him over to his bed. A couple more held him down as they tied his hands and feet to the bedpost. Roy screamed in pain as the men hit him repeatedly. The knives followed. Roy uttered a final prayer and departed this earth to spend eternity with his Savior. Neighbors who heard the screams called the police who quickly made their way to the scene. The police were eager to make an arrest, so they arrested the two Christians from the home where the film had been shown that night, as well as the rickshaw driver who had taken Roy home from the screening. None of them had anything to do with the murder, but in the eyes of the police it showed progress in the investigation. The murder came as no surprise to other Christians in the area. 
Several times Roy had been threatened and told to stop showing the Jesus film. He refused to stop. He was willing to pay the price for using this tool to reach people with the gospel message. Beloved, we really don't know persecution in this country. None of us, when we woke up this morning and got ready for church, had to fear arrest or persecution from the governing authorities because of our decision to come here and worship Christ. But we as believers who are living lives for Christ should be facing some degree of persecution. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. I wish he would have said might or you may be. No, he says you will be. Jesus said in John 15.18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And according to Jesus, persecution is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, Jesus taught that it was a blessing to be persecuted for identification with him. Matthew 5, 10 to 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so as we come to this passage here in the book of Philippians, we understand that Paul is facing suffering. He is in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is suffering. He is facing circumstances and conditions that he would not choose for himself. But he chooses to not waste his suffering. And because of Paul's suffering, many were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believers were being strengthened to boldly proclaim the good news. And Almighty God was receiving all the glory. So let's look at our text, Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. The key verse in this section is verse 12, where we see Paul's greatest desire is for the advancement of the gospel. He is not concerned with his circumstances, the fact that he is in prison, and the fact that he is in chains and separated from those he truly loves. In a sense, Paul is saying this, this is his mantra, it does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. Whether it be imprisonment or even death, for to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul suffered, but the gospel was advanced. 
And you and I are going to face suffering. There are some here this morning, including our beloved pastor, who are going through great suffering even now. You and I will go through very difficult situations. We will endure various trials. We will encounter circumstances that we would never choose for ourselves. So how will we endure? Because they're coming if they're not with you already. How will we be victorious? Beloved, we will be victorious when we have the perspective of Paul, when we can say, and when we can get to the place where we can say, it does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. So today I want to give you from the word of God three purposes for suffering so that the gospel might be advanced. Three purposes for suffering so that the gospel might be advanced. Number one is the evangelization of unbelievers. The evangelization of unbelievers. Look again in verses 12 to 13. Paul says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances has turned out, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Friends, Paul is in prison, but instead of saying, woe is me, he recognizes that in his imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. The word in the New American Standard here is the word progress in the English. The Greek word was a word used for pioneers cutting away before the army and so furthering its march. It may have been a military term for those cutting through forests or over mountains It's also used as a technical term in Stoic philosophy for progress toward wisdom. William Hendrickson, great Bible commentator, says, The apostles' recent experiences have had the same effect on the gospel message as the work of sturdy engineers has on the progress of an army. These men are sent ahead in order to remove obstructions and clear the roads for the rest of the army. Now, in the path of the gospel, too, there have been formidable obstructions. Paul's experiences and reactions, his bonds, trial, constant witness for Christ, conduct in the midst of affliction, had served the purpose of tending to remove these obstacles. Thus, roadblocks set up by Satan to hinder and stop the progress of the gospel had become stepping stones to better understanding and deeper appreciation of God's redemptive truth and to rising courage in defending it. Paul had been bound, but the word of God could not be bound. Listen to this. Because Paul is in prison, the gospel is advanced. God does this because of Paul's circumstances and not in spite of them. The good news reaches the ears of unbelievers in Rome He tells these Philippian believers that the specific purpose of his imprisonment is the advancement of the gospel. In case they are feeling sorry for him or in case they are questioning the sovereignty of God in his life, he tells them that everything that has happened to him has led to the advancement of the gospel. In other words, this was God's specific purpose for this time in his life. And God was not surprised with all that was taking place In fact, God ordained it. 
The Lord gave Paul an opportunity to reach a crowd that he could never reach outside the walls of a Roman prison. Verse 13, he says, So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. The guards who stood watch over the apostle knew that Paul was in prison for the sake of Christ. It was manifestly clear to them that Paul's chains were for the cause of Christ. The impact of the gospel through his imprisonment not only penetrated the Praetorian Guard, it also reached the inhabitants of the city of Rome. Other believers began to hear of his imprisonment. And anyone who had the occasion to know about Paul's confinement had also come to learn that it had to do with his being the leader of the Christian religion. The gospel was advanced among unbelievers. So how will you react and how will I react when Difficult circumstances come our way. Will you seek pity and attention? Or will you see it as an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced? There's a man named Dave Dravecki. Perhaps some of you have heard of him and maybe even heard him speak as I have had the opportunity. Dave Dravecki is a wonderful man of God who I've had the pleasure of meeting and speaking with. He was a great pitcher for the San Diego Padres and then the, the uh, San Francisco Giants, mostly in the 80s. And he got cancer and he made a miraculous comeback and pitched again and even won a game in the National League playoffs. But then his cancer returned and his baseball career was over and he had to have his arm amputated. And I remember seeing him shortly after this had happened, and he was a very, very, in high, very high demand to go and speak to churches and to groups like FCA. And uh, it was neat to hear him talking about some of the things that he was doing, even with his arm being amputated. Uh, he took up golf, we could still play catch with his boys in the backyard, and he even took up fishing. And he told the story of how he was in a sporting goods store looking at some fishing rods and reels. And the, uh, the worker back there was a little curious and said, hey, uh, do you fish? And he's like, yes, I do. And he's like, can I just ask you, how do you do it? And he goes, well, I cast and then I put, it, put the rod under my arm and then I, I reel it in. The guy was like, that's, that's pretty impressive. But I need to ask you, have you ever caught a fish? And Dave said, yeah, in fact, last week I caught one this long. (laughs) Some of you are just now getting that. (laughs) Dravecki could have said, woe is me. My career is over. My arm is gone. I can no longer do the thing that God gifted me to do. But he didn't. Instead, during the time of his amputation in the cancer ward of the hospital, he walked the hallways, stopping by the rooms of other cancer patients to share with them the hope of the gospel. Many of you have read the book, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And Piper also wrote a little paper after he contracted prostate cancer entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. I'm just going to give you what he writes here. You could put anything in for the word cancer. Just put in suffering. But he said, you will waste your cancer if you do not believe it is, it is designed for you by God. You will waste your cancer if you spend too much, reading about, too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. 
You will waste your cancer if you grieve as those who have no hope. You will waste your cancer if you treat sin as casually as before. And you will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means of witness to the truth and glory of Christ. So how will you react when you find out that your husband or your wife or your child has cancer? Or when you learn that as a couple you will not be able to have children biologically? Or when you are told that your child will be handicapped his whole life? Or when you receive those unexpected results from your MRI or your CAT scan? Or even when you receive a death threat like my friend Terry for preaching the gospel? By God's grace, you and I will respond correctly. We will do this by realizing that one purpose for suffering is for the evangelization of the lost. And by doing so, the gospel will be advanced. Number two, a second purpose for suffering we see here is the edification of the saints. The edification of the saints. Verse 14. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Many of the Christians in Rome had gained confidence and and had become bolder in telling others about Christ. They were emboldened because of Paul's imprisonment. You see, they were preaching the gospel before he was imprisoned, but now they were preaching with an added element of boldness and fearlessness and dare. Paul understood that his imprisonment was not only leading to the evangelization of unbelievers, but also the spread of the gospel through the believers who were in Rome. The zeal of the brethren is increased dramatically because of Paul's suffering. The sense here is that their courage is far greater than before. One Bible commentator says this, The point is not that the majority had been unduly timid before this, but that their courage had risen to new heights when they might have been intimidated. Under all circumstances, it was a risky thing to preach the gospel in a city like Rome, a city that was hostile to Christ. But because of Paul's imprisonment, the brethren were willing to take risks like never before. The believers were edified, and therefore the gospel was advanced. In January of 1997, I received a call in the middle of the night. A student at a local high school, a leader among the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in his school, had been broadsided by a semi and was killed instantly. His name was Wes Eckerty. He was a 16-year-old sophomore at a school called PBL High School near Champaign, Illinois. I had spent a week with him that previous summer at an, at an FCA camp, an FCA leadership camp. He had come to become a better leader in his school. I got a call by the FCA huddle coach of the high school, and he asked me if I would come the next morning to try to comfort the family and the friends of Wes. And when I arrived, there were dozens of high school students weeping and confused and angry. They did not understand why this happened to such a great kid. The family was suffering greatly. The parents had lost their only son, and the daughter had lost her only sibling. And in Illinois at that time, when I was working for FCA, anyone who wanted to be an officer in their school, a leader, had to fill out a huddle application form where they had to answer some questions and be able to um, 
vocalize their testimony that they truly were a believer in Jesus Christ. And I remembered that after the phone call and I, I went, I had a three ring binder of all the, all the schools, all the students, all the student leaders who I was responsible for. And I found his application. And we had two, two of the evangelism explosion questions that were on that application. If you die today, are you sure that you would go to heaven? And if Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And Wes had responded to the first question with the word yes. And he answered the second question by saying, because you died on the cross for my sins and my salvation, and I have believed in you. I was so thrilled. I was greatly comforted in this. And on that Saturday, he died on a Friday night. On that Saturday, I was able to share with about 15 to 16 students who just, they wanted hope. And they said, can you talk to us? And, and I just shared the gospel with them and gave them the hope of eternal life. On Monday, I was able to speak at Wes's funeral and speak to the entire student body of that high school. I still can remember seeing them seated in the balcony of that church. And I shared the good news of Jesus Christ with those young people, really with a boldness I had never experienced before. I knew Wes Eckerty. I knew, I, I knew and believed that Wes was saved and was now in the presence of God. And I was strengthened and I was emboldened because of a family's loss of a dear son. And because of this, the gospel was advanced. Unbelievers were evangelized and believers like myself were strengthened in their walk with Christ. We had a man in our church in Indiana, his name was Tom, and he began attending our church shortly after we purchased our, our building that we were meeting in in 2005. Tom was saved in January of 2006 after listening to the audiobook Let's Roll by Lisa Beamer, whose husband Todd was on that plane, Flight 93, on September 11, 2001. And in that book, Tom heard her talk about her relationship with Jesus Christ and Tom had grown up Catholic and he knew he did not have this and this was what he wanted and soon after he gave his life to Jesus. Tom was later baptized. I had the honor of baptizing him and he became very active in our church. He did PowerPoint and helped with our broadcast ministry. He worked in the nursery. He was a part of a group that I taught called Theology for Breakfast. I saw tremendous growth in his life despite the fact that his wife was not a believer and wanted nothing to do with his newfound religion. In 2008, he sent a short paper to me that he had typed up. This man is only a believer for two years, and he wrote this little paper and sent it to me, and it was called, Why Bad Things Happen. This is not from a theologian. This is from a layperson who learned to love Christ. He says, Lately, my prayer life has been finding its voice which has me struggling with the question why bad things happen to Christians. Why is Drew in a coma? Why are Christians being persecuted? Why does God allow these things to happen to his faithful? And then he said in bold, it is necessary that these things happen to us. It is necessary that the world know that becoming a Christian is not the way to a good life here on earth, but rather eternal life with our Father. It is important that the world know what it means to be a Christian, that we count it all as rubbish, as Paul said, next to the saving grace of our Lord. If having a good life was as easy as being a Christian, then how many false Christians would there be in the church? This would not be what our Father would want. 
So what do we have in Christ? We have security in his promise that he will come back for us. And for all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Friend, do you know what this is? This is the edification of the saints. Someone being built up in the body of Christ for the glory of God. And suffering will do that for you. Paul tells us here about those who communicate the good news. Two types of people here. First of all, he talks about those who preach Christ with impure motives. Verse 15, look at that. He says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Down in verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Friends, as long as we live in this sinful world, there will always be those who preach with impure motives, right? Those who preach for selfish gain. Because they've been told, hey, you're good at public speaking. You should become a pastor. They've been told you would make a good preacher or because of their want for power or to be able to make decisions, to rule over others rather than to lead others and to shepherd, to get on radio or television and to sell a lot of books. There are many who preach with impure motives today. All you have to do is turn on the television, TBN, or Sunday morning when church is canceled because of snow or flooding. Watch these TV preachers and listen to what they are saying and listen to what they are not saying. Paul faced this in his day as well, but Paul's concern here is that Christ was being preached. Look what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. God is so great. God is so powerful. God is so in control of all things that he can even take the selfish and impure motives of men, men who preach from selfish ambition and from strife and from envy and cause the gospel to be proclaimed so that others hear the word of God and are saved. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. How great is our God? Note here that Although Paul rebukes the the messengers for having impure motives and selfish ambition, he never rebukes the message of Christ. The fact remains that the message about Christ is being preached and Paul's heart is full of joy because the message of Jesus is being heard. He does, however, commend the second group of people, those who preach Christ with pure motives. Verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. This group of people, like the Apostle Paul, eagerly desired that the gospel be advanced and that many would come to a knowledge of the truth. They did so because they loved Paul. They understood that the Lord had sovereignly placed Paul in prison to proclaim salvation in Christ. These people were motivated by a love for God and a love for his word and by a love for the apostle himself. I had the great privilege of sitting under a man at the Master Seminary, Tom did as well, named Alex Montoya. He was our preaching instructor. I also had the honor of visiting his church in Los Angeles to witness him preaching the word of God. 
and to see him do that with great passion, with pure motives. Pastor Montoya loves God, loves his word. He loves the people of God. And that was so evident as we visited that church and were embraced by those kind people. He was convinced that God had called him to preach. And after graduating from seminary, he took a church that paid him very little money. And I believe it was at his ordination exam, Dr. Robert Thomas a legendary professor at the Master Seminary said, what will you do if no one comes? And Montoya said, I'll still preach. <laughs> Love it. During the time of Paul's writing of this epistle, 61, 62 AD, some were preaching with impure motives, some were preaching with pure motives, but Christ was being preached. The saints were being edified and the gospel was advancing. And so we have seen so far that the first purpose of suffering is for the evangelization of the lost. The second is for the edification of the saints. The third reason for suffering is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Paul rejoices in the fact that the gospel is being preached. He rejoices in the fact that the gospel was advancing. He rejoices in his God and he gives glory to the God of his salvation. He rejoices in the fact that Christ is preached, though it was often done with different motives. Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Philippians says, even by insincere preaching or from wrong underlying motives, Christ is preached and made known in every way, and in this the apostle rejoices. Paul could rejoice even in his suffering. And he had the authority to tell the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I always laugh at that because in Philippians 3, 1, he says, finally, and he writes two more chapters. So <laughs> when a pastor says, finally, don't get your coat on, all right? There's, there's still some time. Philippians 4, 4, which was read earlier, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul exhorted the Philippians to rejoice no matter what the circumstances so that the Lord would be exalted. Rejoicing and suffering is something that Paul experienced and modeled. Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 2 Corinthians 6.10, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, writes this, the moment we come into any trial or difficulty, our first thought should be not how soon we can escape from it or how we may lessen the pain we shall suffer from it, but how can we best glorify God in it and most quickly learn the lesson which he desires to teach us by it? Had we grace and faith enough to do this, our trials and troubles would be but as so many steps by which we should climb to the mountaintop of continual fellowship and peace with God. The soul that has learned the blessed secret of seeing God's hand and all that concerns us cannot be a prey to fear. It looks beyond all second causes, straight into the heart and will of God, and rests content because he rules. 
That is an awesome reaction to trials, to look beyond all second causes and to look straight into the heart and will of God. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. How many of us are rejoicing in our sufferings? That's a difficult thing to do. There's probably not too many of us here this morning as we were praying, you're like, Lord, give me trials. I'd, I'd like some. Life's just a little too good right now. Bring it on, Lord. We don't pray for difficulties. We don't welcome persecution. I don't know that there's anyone here this morning who would like to trade places with Pastor Leek or with Paul Bodwin or others who are suffering. But when God in his sovereignty brings trials and suffering our way, we should embrace it. Understanding that God is causing all things, all things, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That God is using suffering to make us more like him, to conform us to the image of Christ. So I would say with Piper this morning, don't waste your suffering. Well, how are we doing? How are we reacting to the suffering that God brings us? Do we feel sorry for ourselves and cry, poor me? Does it consume us in a way that brings other believers down rather than building them up? Does it cause our relationship with the Lord to go sour? Or do we see suffering as an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced? For the evangelization of unbelievers for the edification of the saints, and for the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Friends, we must choose the latter. Horatio Spofford was a man who did just that. Many of you know his story, some of you may not. Spofford had known peaceful and happy days as a successful attorney in Chicago. He was the father of five children, an active member of a Presbyterian church, and a loyal friend and supporter of D.L. Moody and other evangelical leaders of his day. Without warning, however, a series of unexpected events occurred. First, there was the sudden death of the Spofford's only son. Then, a short time after, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 wiped out the family's extensive real estate investments. When Mr. Moody and his his music associate, Ira Sankey, left for Great Britain for an evangelistic campaign, Spofford decided to take his family to Europe to lift their spirits and also to assist in the meetings. In November 1873, Spofford was detained by urgent business, but he sent his wife and his four daughters, as scheduled, on the SS Vildaharf, planning to join them soon. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship was struck by an English vessel and sank in 12 minutes. All four of the Spofford daughters, Tanetta, Maggie, Annie, and Bessie, were among the 226 who drowned. Mrs. Spofford was among the few who were miraculously saved. Horatio Spofford stood hour after hour on the deck of the ship, carrying him to rejoin his sorrowing wife in Cardiff, Wales. And when the ship passed the approximate place where his, previous, where his precious daughters had drowned, Spofford received sustaining comfort from God that enabled him to write these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
It is well, it is well with my soul. Spofford endured great suffering. But in the midst of his personal suffering, he saw the opportunity for the gospel to be advanced. And because of his faith and trust in God, unbelievers heard the gospel of Jesus Christ through him directly or through others who knew his story. And believers in Christ have been edified, haven't they, from just the pinning of these words? I remember at TMS, that song was always sung louder in chapel. Whenever we sang it, man, guys turned it up. You guys who might be studying for Greek, they put their stuff down. It's like, it is well, we're going to sing this. And uh, I think because seminary students endure their own suffering, poverty, <laughs> poor grades, and a class called NTI, right? But when we think about what this man endured and we read the words of this great hymn, it really grows our faith and it makes our trial seem so small. Almighty God has been exalted and he has received glory and praise. Friends, I hate to be the messenger to tell you that we will all face suffering, but you've read that in the Bible. All of us who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And so may you and I see these difficulties as opportunities for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be able to, to see and say with sincerity and with joy, it does not matter what happens to me as long as the gospel is advanced. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his suffering and how he didn't waste it, Lord, but he saw it as an opportunity for the gospel to be advanced. Lord, it led to the evangelization of unbelievers. It led to the edification of the saints. And it led to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we have that mindset as we go through trials and difficulties and things that, Lord, we would never choose for ourselves. May we not waste our suffering, but would use, that we would use it for the glory of Almighty God and for the advancement of your kingdom on the earth. We need your help. We need your strength. We are weak. In you, we are made strong. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.